when my youngest son graduated from um, Southern Seminary, actually I prayed the same prayer to the graduates when he got a, a doctorate over at Southeastern, I had this sentence in the prayer. I asked that in this terribly confused and willful world that the men gathered here today would be manly and the women womanly. I think there was a little bit of that kind of, you know, kind of, what was that, you know, or say what? Uh, I think some were pleased, some were perplexed, and some were like, what are you up to? But in fact, that's a very important distinction that our graduates need to have between being manly and being womanly. It's a distinction that biblicists and secularists alike uh, address. You know, I went to the bookstore the other day, and I started just, I got a, a little gift card, and I started buying up manly books here. Tony Evans, Kingdom Man, Heroic by Bill DeVoe, The Dude's Guide to Manhood by Darren Patrick, and Man Stuff by Josh Turner, and it goes on and on. It's, it's some really good stuff. There, there are even seminary-published books on manhood, and one of them has 25 things you're supposed to teach your kids, and I went down through there. I guess that means you're supposed to be able to do them too. And one of them was like, like skin an animal, and I'd never done that. You know, so I thought I may be gay. I don't know what that's about, but but I have fired a Forder's mortar and a 50 caliber machine gun, so I thought I could substitute that for skinning an animal. Cleaned a fish once, but uh, anyway. But there's there's a lot of really uh, wonderful stuff out there. By the way, there's a really interesting book called Manliness by Stephen Mansfield. I mean, yeah, Stephen. No, Harvey Mansfield. Stephen's another author. And it's with Yale Press, and he taught at Harvard. And he basically, and I've heard it summarized this way, uh, he basically says manliness is being willing to put yourself on the line to protect a woman. So if you're Barney Fife and you've got Goliath, you just say, you touch her, you're coming over me. That's manliness. You know, it's not like a, a muscled kind of guy. It's interesting. I don't know if you know Camille Paglia. Um, she's a feminist. She's a lesbian. But she wrote this really provocative article in Time Magazine and December of 2018, um, here's some of what she said. By the way, the title is, It's a Man's World, and It Always Will Be. After the next inevitable apocalypse, men will be desperately needed again. Oh, sure, there will be the odd gun-toting gun -toting Amazonian survivalist gal who can rustle game out of the bush and feed her flock. But most women and children will be expecting men to scrounge for food and water and to defend the home turf. Indeed, men are absolutely indispensable right now, invisible as it is to most feminists who seem blind to the infrastructure that makes their own work lives possible. It is overwhelmingly men who do the dirty, dangerous work of building roads, pouring concrete, laying bricks, tarring roofs, hanging electric wires, excavating natural gas and sewage lines, cutting and clearing trees, and bulldozing the landscape for housing developments. It is men who heft and weld the giant steel beams that frame our office buildings. And it is men who do the hair-raising work of inserting and sealing the finely tempered plate glass windows of skyscrapers 50 stories tall. Every day along the Delaware River in Philadelphia, one can watch the passage of vast oil tankers and towering cargo ships arriving from all over the world. These stately colossi are loaded, steered, offloaded by men. The modern economy, with its vast production and distribution network, is a male epic in which women have found a productive role. But women were not its author. Surely modern women are strong enough now to give credit where credit is due. Now, of course, it's not just physical. I mean, it's not as though at the beginning God created, got Adam and Eve and said, okay, y'all wrestle, you know, and, and who wins gets to have headship, uh, and if it's a draw, 
you know, we'll flip a coin. I mean, there's more to it than physicality, but there is that. Well, a lot of people talk about these distinctions, and Southern Baptists affirmed them in a resolution in 2016, and we came out against registering women for the draft. And we appealed to Genesis 1, and we said, also, just in terms of the lethality and survivability on the battlefield, there's a huge difference. And anyway, it's a very fine uh, document. Well, recently, um, a commission called the National Commission on Military, National, and Public Service started in 2016. I think John McCain was in on it back then. Um, they called a panel of us to speak to them in Washington, D.C. for a morning. We were there for a couple of hours. 11 commissioners, there were five of us on the panel. Uh, there was a um, Roman Catholic, a Quaker, or a friend. I think he was an atheistical uh, libertarian. And then there was a Marine sergeant who had served in Iraq, and she was arguing, you shouldn't draft women. And by the way, there was this wonderful fellow in the back when we had open mic time, uh, Captain Robert Miller, retired Navy. And he has a group called Hope for America and has so many wonderful things he sends me all the time. He's basically saying we have lost our minds when it comes to the role of women. Incidentally, we had a, um, a, an army chaplain do a master's thesis uh, under, under me. It's about chivalry in the army and basically saying we're losing our sense of chivalry. And, you know, if you're supposed to just send women or men on patrol equally, you've lost something really, really precious. Anyway, I would encourage you to I can send you any of this stuff, by the way, if you're at all interested. But anyway, when I was up there, I said a number of things. Um, I said, first, this is not a narrowly Southern Baptist thing. I'm, I'm here because I'm Southern Baptist, and here's our resolution. I went country by country by country, and in the majority other religion countries, they don't have drafts. Muslim country, Indonesia, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, uh, uh, Orthodox countries, Greece, Romania, uh, Catholic countries, Italy, I mean, you, you know, just go down the line with it. Um, goodness, I mean, just uh, Hindu countries, you know, Nepal, Myanmar, uh, Buddhist countries, and so forth. Those would be Buddhist. Hindu countries, India, Nepal. And you just think, somebody apparently is picking up on something that seems to be kind of universal. Yes, there's Israel. I make an argument that there is uh, a special case there. But it's kind of like Norway and Mali and North Korea. It's still a tiny group. So it's not narrowly sectarian. Um, I said that though my wife, Sharon, was not in the military, uh, she served the military. You don't have to be in the military. to serve the military. My son, my eldest son, uh, just retired, 20 years Marine officer at Camp Lejeune. We were over there, and I got to pray. And he made some remarks, and he said, and I just want to thank my mother who taught me discipline. And I'm thinking, well, where was I? But at any rate, uh, he, she apparently trained that Marine officer who served two tours in Iraq, and uh, he called me once from Tikrit and said, Dad, I'm on one of Saddam's palace porticos. And uh, I said, man, be careful. He said, they got IEDs, and they got all this stuff. And he said, Dad, when Marines travel, we're both safe and dangerous. Well, <laughs> whatever. But uh, at any rate, uh, he said his mom was actually a big part of his military training. Uh, my daughter was there. Uh, she lives in D.C. She married a, a White House staffer uh, under Bush. And uh, she had a full ride to Georgetown in political philosophy, a doctoral program, total ride. And uh, she also was offered a job in the White House uh, 
as an assistant to the head of the National Endowment on Museums and Libraries. She worked at State, she worked at, uh, I mean at Justice, she worked at Labor. And so she had all this stuff that women are supposed to really like, to be historic in this. And she walked away from it, and she was there with her four daughters. And she had them, and I said, look, you can deal with this thing about whether women may or can or whatever serve here, but I'm telling you what, I want my granddaughters to have the ability, the freedom not to serve and to lift up the family. And so we introduced them. Um, I, I took a newspaper and, and I said, look, uh, if I want this right-hand column, then I can just tear that down and get the article. But then say, oh, I want this thing along the bottom here. I'll just tear it out. And so I go like this. Whoop, that doesn't work. Why? Because there's a grain in the paper. Now, I can force it. I mean, I can do, you know, and come up like that. But it's stupid because there's a grain to the paper. There is a grain to creation. And when we act as though gender doesn't matter, then we're going cross-grain and actually making fools of ourselves and doing a lot, of, uh, a lot of damage. Everybody likes historic now. This is the historic, you know, it's like Sally Ride was this, you know, uh, uh, Janet Guthrie, first woman to drive an Indy and stuff, man, man, man. And when I was a trustee at Southern back in the 80s, we had an historic um, first theology professor at the Southern Baptist Seminary, Molly Marshall Green. So I was a trustee and we're going in there and we were outnumbered and we were trying to say don't let, and by the way, it wasn't just, she was a woman, she was for post-mortem evangelism and just, just wacky stuff. And so, you know, people saying, well, we're going to, you know, let's not create a stir and things are delicate. And, but there were seven of us who didn't know any better than just say, yeah, but she ain't, ain't going to work. Anyway, one of them was a woman. One was a woman. You've never heard of her. Her name was Dorothy Barker. And she was a, a homemaker and a deputy county clerk in a town of 2,000, 56 miles west of Lubbock. And by the way, Herschel Hodds once said of Lubbock, you can see farther and less there than any place on earth. <laughs> and so here's Dorothy way out here, and uh, she voted against her. You don't know who that is, but I would say that was historic. That was the first woman to vote against tenure for the historic first theology woman professor. So Dorothy ought to be up there with Sally Ride, but she's not because that's not the way it rolls in our culture. And increasingly, actually, that's not the way it rolls in evangelicalism. Oh, well, she's the first chairman of the board. She's the first agency. She's the, yeah, well, Dorothy was the first one to take a stand in a pretty tense time and say, not in my Bible. I don't see that, you know? So I want to lift that. Well, why is that? Well, we have a God, for example, and it's, the God is sensitivity, uh, and we've bought into that or perceived sensitivity. You know, in my, in my day, when I was uh, in college, the deal was with liberals, we'll call you, you know, a Christian if you'll call us scholars. I mean, that, that was the kind of thing. We were so <laughs> unsure of ourselves, and thank God we had C.S. Lewis for a little bit of cover, you know. But today, it's like, uh, we'll call you, you know, cool if you call us sensitive or something like that. We just want to be so woke and and uh, not 
wearing polyester and being sweaty and being home of this and homophobic and like that. We want to be cool dudes. And um, so we make some pretty bad deals. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to risk something here, but I'm going I'm to give you three maxims that are, are good. and They're kind of like fire. They warm things and cook things, and they're nice. But boy, they can be misappropriated. And I think they're doing a job on us, in part, uh, on us evangelicals. There are different versions of this, but one is, no man ever said on his deathbed, I wish I'd spent more time at uh, the office or at work, right? You've heard that one. Okay, that's nice. Now, it does bring up pictures of some guy, sweaty guy trying to make more money in advance and get to corner office. I mean, that's what it brings up. But still, that's out there. And I've seen different iterations of it. And um, I th I, anyway, it, the, the problem is, it's as though the more time you, oh, let me say this. I think more men ought to say, I wish I'd spent more time at work than with my family. You know, like, well, what, what, did you have a calling? I mean, what were you doing? I mean, it's, it, it, you just got this, this notion that, uh, um, you know, it's almost circular. It's sort of like the best thing is building birdhouses with your children. To what end? So that then they could learn to make birdhouses with their children. So that they could learn to make birdhouses with their children. I mean, it's, just, it's like Amish or something. Let's just raise a barn and just sing Kumbaya. And it's like, wait a second. You, you got to break out. There's something worthy outside. And you could overdo the inside. And so these guys are walking around with guilt like, oh, uh, you know, I just, uh, mercy. Another one. God first, family second, ministry or career third. Okay, I've heard that. I think there's some problems with that. I understand it. I could be the PR director for that slogan if you paid me. But here's the deal, or I'll do it for free. But I wrote an ETS paper about that, and it seems to me it's, there's some problems. I counted 15, actually, but I'm just going to give you two. Um, for one thing, there's an epistemological problem. It's like, okay, here's a guy. I mean, he is just stretching. He's a layman. He's been in the church 12 years, and finally he's about to make a mission trip. His first one, we're going down to South America. Oh, should I do it, should I do it? God, do you, I, I feel, I feel God's leading to do it. I don't know if I can say that in this setting, but I think that things like that happen. And <laughs> says, I feel God's leading to do it. And, but I'm not sure, and the wife says, well, I know that we don't want you to do it. Well, checkmate, Trump. In other words, I'm not totally sure I should do this, but they say no, so in fact, what happens is the guy doesn't go on the mission trip. We were trained in Arkansas when we were going on mission trips. One guy said, get your people overseas on a, a volunteer mission trip and they'll uh, discover that they're eagles rather than turkeys. And when they get home, it's hard to keep them out of the air. But what they do, she plays the trump card, family second, in a sense, you know. And again, that's not to diss God. It's just like we're trying to decide what God wants. The family spoke, bang. So they live with a turkey instead of an eagle because they may be less than anointed. Look, my, I'm on a University of Michigan survey of families, and my mom went to U of M years ago. I'm half Yankee, and, um, and proud of it, but proud I'm half Tennessean too. And they asked the question, um, how much housework do you do? Around, I forgot how they put it, but it wasn't housework around the house. And you could tell from the question, and also I know the answer uh, is favored. It's like, the more the better. Oh, 50-50 dishes. I'm just saying, you know, oh, sublime, sublime, you know, this kind of thing. And I'm thinking, so the husband at his best is like an assistant housewife? I mean, homemaker? What? 
what is, what is the logic in that, you know? If I haven't offended you yet, uh, just bear with me here. <laughs> By the way, psychology professor Paul Vitz, NYU psychology professor, says, what is the father's function? The father is a kind of Mr. Outside, while the mother is Mr. Inside. I know it's Mr., but he says it, Mr. Inside. She forms the basic character, the emotional life, the interpersonal responsiveness of the child much more than the father. But the father introduces the child much more often to the outside world. The father symbolizes the structure of that world and of law and order, of the activities, of the things that get you involved in when you leave the home. And so he says there really is a division of labor. To put a sharper point on it, here's Antonin Scalia, you know, the really remarkable Supreme Court justice whose dissents are great literature. You know, should, you should read Scalia. He died prematurely, and when they were doing the uh, obituary, they quoted an interview that he did with Leslie Stahl for 60 Minutes. And uh, it goes like this. Uh, he, he worked a lot with, while the children were young and never went to any of their soccer games or piano recitals. Having his father attend his own events as a child was something like something Scalia wasn't used to himself. You know, my parents never did it for me, and I didn't take it personally. Oh, Daddy, uh, come, oh, oh, Daddy, come to my softball game. No, I mean, it's my softball game. He has his work, I got my softball game. You're not supposed to talk that way, but that's what he said. Scalia's Ivy League-educated wife told Stahl, and by the way, I've been to countless uh, ball games. My, my kids were good at it. Scalia's Ivy League-educated wife told Stahl that she juggled most of the events, making sure to show up for a little bit at a time for each of them. Scalia survived Maureen, his wife of over 50 years, and his middle-aged children, Anne, Eugene, John, Catherine, Mary, Paul, Christopher, Matthew, and Margaret. They went on to make their parents proud and give them more than 30 grandchildren. Paul became a parish priest in Virginia, and Matthew made a successful career in the Army. The biography uh, writes that they were quoting, Eugene and John became lawyers based in Washington, while Christopher made a name for himself as a writer. Catherine, Ann, Margaret, Mary each gave birth to a handful of children. Scalia married Maureen in 1960. He called it the product of the best decision I ever made. The mother of the nine children you see, the woman responsible for raising them with very little assistance from me, and there's not a dullard in the bunch. Well, how dare you, sir? Well, I don't know, he was like saving the country, uh, in a sense, you know, like, excuse me. Uh, and I don't remember my dad coming much. It, it wasn't like, uh, okay, where is he? I don't think I can play for the LM Junior, goes a junior high school Beavers, you know, tonight unless dad's up there. I was just in the moment. But to dare to talk that way is so countercultural because it's like all that other stuff, the home's the point. And I submit to you, it's really not for both in the same way. Both are totally vital, and they're both involved, but at any rate. Uh, but poor Maureen, I mean, what, nine kids, Harvard-educated, what a waste of her life. Listen, I taught, when I was a church planner in Evanston, I taught at Wheaton. Uh, I would go out there and teach adjunct. I taught there full-time in the 70s. And I remember I had two Christ and culture classes back-to-back -back once, and there were about 80 students total. And I quoted uh, uh, Genesis 128, and I said, how many of you think that if you get married, you ought to have some kids? Just some kids. I'm not saying no contraception, maximum kids. Just some kids. And I think there were only like 10 hands out of the 80 raised. It's totally elective. It's like eating tofu or going to New Zealand, you know? It's just whatever, you know? And I thought, well, 
And some, I was in a Christian uh, editing group, and once they were saying, well, we've got that covered. We're fruitful to multiply. You know, we covered the ground. Next, you know, seven and a half billion people. Do you realize you could put all the people on earth, over seven billion, standing shoulder to shoulder in the city limits of Houston? Really. I mean, we got some space. And the people die, and you need more people. But at any rate, there's a job to do. And yet it's like, well, yeah, but what about my career? I need to leave my options open. Incidentally, do a career word search in Young's or Strong's or something. That's not a big biblical theme. Well, you're young. Let's have your career pattern. You know, I'm, what was it? How to, be, how to become bishop without being religious. Do you remember that old book? Like you start with a two-door black falcon and you move up to a metallic green Oldsmobile in the pastorate and, you know, the bigger kinds of stuff. And it, it's sort of like, here are the stair steps for your career. I think in the Bible what they did, they did this and they did this under God's leading and they're banged here and there and there and then, and then they look back and said, well, that was interesting. I guess that was my career. But today we're more like Macedonian call. Oh, yeah, God, but have you got dental? You know, I mean, it, we're, just so, we're just so eaten up with our, with our career. And so that's crippled us a lot too. And wait, well, I won't be able to provide for my family and this and this and this. And, by the way, I think it was Chuck Fairbanks who was the coach of the Patriots. And he left them to coach at Colorado, and he broke his contract. And, and I remember he said, I had to think of my family. You had a contract, and you, you weren't paid well enough to be an NFL coach, and you think of your family. I tell you what your family needs. It needs a man of integrity. And, but career, career is just such a it's crazy stuff. Look, I submit to you that... Um, Wives should be more like police and military wives. Does that make sense to you? That it's not as though if you're not here, you're slacking. And there is a whole tradition of respect for military wives. Military wives love their work. It's hard. But if the guy gets drafted to go to Afghanistan or if he is going to be undercover for six months with the police, they don't say, well, that's it. You know, you've broken the bonds of you know, deep nightly mutuality or something like that. It's like, no, you've got your job to do. You're a world beater. You're a world preserver. Here's one, uh, here's one little piece of a poem. I am an Air Force wife. This is from the Creed. Guardian of favorite blankets and bedtime stories. My airman's right hand, his lover and supporter. I defend my family with my life. And there are many of these creeds, military wife creeds. How about the police officer's wife? How many goodbyes are whispered, joined with a fond embrace? As duty steals her man for the danger he must face, she's a mother, lover, chauffeur, and nurse, a living symbol of for better or for worse. Rich is the man reaping his rewards in life who choose to be the other half of a police officer's wife. In other words, I'm at peace with this. I'll hold down the fort. We'd love to have you home, but I perfectly understand that you're out putting it on the line and your own call. Do you realize how many TV shows are built around like a huffy police or military wife, you know, we're having, you know, our anniversary, and oh, I got a call and like that, and the next thing you know, they're divorced. But these people say, you, you don't understand the job. The job is my guy goes out and does the work, and I hold down the fort and raise the kids, and when he's home, we raise them together, and I can put some things on the line, but it is a different thing. It's just like fingernails on the blackboard to the culture right now, what I'm saying. And I'm pushing it a bit, but still, it's just, it's just something we need to hear. 
By the way, doesn't that sound like a Proverbs 31 woman? You know, she's doing all her things, and her man's grateful and proud, and she takes care of the kids and stuff. A military wife is a Proverbs 31 woman if she's a Christian. Read it in that light, if you will. Now, look, a lot of us are workaday. They're bus drivers or insurance salesmen. Yes, yes, yes. But there are ways to put it on the line in terms of your career, in terms of saying, I won't do that, or I'll work that extra time, and then your fellow workers look down on you. Um, but I'm telling you, all of us ought to have the attitude that at a moment's call, should God desire, we're up and going. And the wife should have the attitude, you go. You get after it, fella. Look, I was in the reserves, um, guard and reserves in the regular army for 28 years. Never went to combat. But I was ready. They had my number. They say, you know, go drop into Kandahar, you know, at night or something. I think, well, there you go, you know. And my wife would say, there you go. That's the attitude that we ought to have. Now, I'm kind of talking, preaching to the wives. Look, I could preach to the husbands, too. It's a tough time to find a good guy. It really is. I mean, people are so compromised and so, I don't know. I'll just save the adjectives right now. But it's kind of like shoot low girls are riding Shetlands. I mean, it's, it's just, uh, it's, it's a tough time to find somebody who's willing to be a hero. Now, sometimes you think, oh, my wife, you know, uh, she'd get all bent out of shape, and then I might lose my family and lose my whole life, and then I wouldn't, and, you know, we get this kind of nervous. And then you get surprised sometimes. I was a teacher of philosophy at Wheaton, and uh, I felt, God, and there I go again, I felt God's leading. But there were a variety of indicators, too. And, uh, and so I thought, I'm supposed to just walk away from this and sell the house and take the kids to seminary. Took a deep breath and uh, went to Sharon, whose dad was Pastor Park Hill, North Little Rock, and executive director of the Missouri Convention, and also a bombardier in World War II. Uh, serious dude. And uh, I said, you know, I can't. And I thought, look, what could be better than to be a philosopher, uh, uh, the wife of a philosophy prof at Billy Graham's alma mater in Chicagoland? That's pretty cool. And I said, I, I think I'm supposed to. And she goes, yes. In other words, she was putting up with me being a philosophy teacher. She was dreaming that, oh, if I could just be a pastor's wife like my mama, that would be kingdom come. And sometimes we think, oh, you know, they're, they're not going to like it if I'm bold or if I sin like that. You might be really surprised. You might really be surprised. Um, by the way, one other little thing, and I could put, a, put this in brackets and in, a, in a lot of ways, but actually, technically, if you lose your family or if they walk away, 1 Corinthians 7, you haven't lost, you may have lost this ministry, but you haven't lost ministry. I mean, unless you're sacerdotal or something like that, you know, people have incredible ministries when they go on. I mean, when I hear these things, they're just like, on the face of them, tend to your family. Be, yes, be solicitous and so forth. But again, don't put the trump card in every little twitch and anxiety in the family so that then you just cash your, your whole Christian walk in boldness. That's something to chew on and chew on me, if you will, about that. I'm saying preserve your families, but they're not God. And if it comes to something really squirrely where you just, at every point, you blink, you blink, you blink, then you're being terrorized by something that is not the highest thing. Now, again, I'm just being counterculture here, and I'm probably counter your culture, but uh, 
look, she's put up with me for 48 years. I mean, I think it, it, it kind of worked. You know, she's, she's never considered divorce, but murders crossed her mind, if you, if you know that. <laughs> By the way, the model I have in all this is my wife, Sharon. She is a trooper. She is a whither thou goest, I will go. And she, uh, one of my children just walked in, and he can testify to the splendor of his mom, who was a gamer and a godly, godly woman. I'm glad there's a Margaret Thatcher, you know. I'm glad that if there's not a Winston Churchill available, you've got a Thatcher. Yes, you might have to play Mr. Mom a little bit, and if she's the only breadwinner and you're in a new town, I mean, I think there are exceptions. You could nuance this thing to death. But it seems like all the push is toward just making the man less of a man. And so I'm doing some awkward pushing back. Sometimes, one of my favorite movies, and I'm about done here, one of my favorite movies is Three Amigos. Um, right up there with, you know, Citizen Kane and, and Godfather One. And you've got these three cowboys who are movie cowboys, but the villagers down in Mexico think they're real cowboys, and they hired them to come down, and they're looking for work, and so they think they, they want them for a movie. So we have a lot of excitement. And... Um, <laughs> Anyway, they, they managed to defeat El Guapo, and at the end, they have this, uh, this wonderful little before we ride off in the sunset tent moment of tenderness with the villagers, and, and so uh, it's uh, Steve Martin, who's lucky day, and this, comes up to Carmen, his love interest, and says, I'll return, and she goes, why? I love that. It's just, he goes, well, I just, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. Well, I think that's, uh, that's kind of fun, like, Honey, I'll be home every night this week. Why? I mean, don't you have, like, evening visita visitation? Or isn't there an associational meeting? Or don't you need to work late writing? Is it like every night? I mean, what are you doing? Tom, I, I apologize. I'm setting back the kingdom here. But again, I'm just doing counterculture now. I can, I can do the other route and so forth. So, But I'm just saying this is... These things are like fingernails on the blackboard because we, we are just buying into a whole set of understandings. Look, to, to close, let me mention this. Back before there was the U.S. Coast Guard, you had the U.S. Life Saving Service. And uh, that was back when they had sailing ships. And you would have little huts all over the shore, um, Atlantic, Pacific, Gulf, Great Lakes. And these guys would be in these little lonely huts, sometimes with families. And if a ship ran aground, and they, they typically like to be fairly close to the shore, if they ran aground, his job was to run out of the hut and go to where the ship was. And they had these big X's. I think they were something like 12 feet tall. And what he would do, he would fire a mortar round with strings attached and ropes attached to try to snag the ship that's foundering and to see if they can grab the end and then pull in the rope. And then you take the X and you put it under the rope and you lift it up and that way it's not in the surf and then you set up a breeches boy and then you bring the people in to shore you rescue them sometimes you couldn't hit the ship but you don't say well you know i'm not sure anybody's alive out there it looks like it's pretty hopeless i'm just one guy because uh, he had a boat he had a lifeboat and so he's trying to do the math and he thinks this isn't going to work out i'm afraid and so, and you know what the slogan is? And I saw this actually at a Maritime Museum in Astoria, Oregon. The slogan was, you have to go out, you don't have to come back. 
How about that? Hey, go out. If you, if you don't get back, we may give you a medal. No, but I'm just one guy, and it's out there, and it's stormy, and this, and this. You have to go out. You don't have to come back. If you do get back, we may give you a medal. But that's not your business. You don't worry about that. Now, can you imagine, let's say we're in Ecuador, and you have Elizabeth Elliot talking to her husband, Jim. And you've got uh, Roger Udurian and Nate Fleming and Ed McCulley, and they're kind of dithering about, the Alcas seem a little prickly, and, you know, they've been giving them gifts, but they've heard rumors, and they're, and they're thinking, do we really want to go in with those people? And Elizabeth looks in her husband's eyes and said, uh, Jim, you have to go out. You don't have to come back. Now that is a wife. Male and female created he them.